we like church. We're finishing off a three-part series we started at the very beginning of the year. Uh, we called the series Better, uh, and we said it's the idea of uh, a series on progress. We said the goal of it being, uh, what if we had this challenge to be able to make this year, 2020, better than last year, whether it was good or great or whatever, or bad, just, you know, we have this natural rhythm of even our, our society going, you can do better this year. Everybody can do better financially. In fact, we listed five different categories of what we felt like are areas that are potentially areas that we could improve on. And we said, if you were to ask yourself um, the very first question, are you gaining or losing momentum in these different areas, financial, relational, physical, career, uh, or spiritual? And we said, pick one, pick two, pick five, doesn't matter. What do you feel like uh, your momentum is kind of pulling you towards? And, and it's not like, uh, we, we, I made it very, very clear at the very beginning of the series, this is not self-help seminar. This is not you can do a better you. This is not Tony Robbins or whatever. Uh, we're a church. We're trying to interpret every single week what it meant to be or what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and his teachings and the, the early church interpretations of his teachings. And so, but this, this uh, what do we do when, when, when we're presented with this areas that need improvement uh, and then kind of mashing this all together and, and looking at the motives for what makes you know, better version of ourselves. And then I left you with this question in week one, and I said, in what ways and to what extremes have I personally gone to hide this lack of momentum or whatever uh, from my friends, my family, and more, most importantly, uh, from myself, from myself. And then Jerry picked it up last week and did a great job talking about the art of becoming and, and, and adding things and doing little things to kind of make it better. It's, it's been really great because there's this idea for us a lot of times of I need to do more, I need to do more. I need, in order to get where I want to be, I've got to add some things in my life. But in, in contrast to that, I would say, as, as we finish off the series, there's also a subtraction involved sometimes. It's not that I just need to eat more apples and drink more water. I need to drink less soda and do less, you know, whatever. I need to play video games less or watch Netflix less or something like that. There's addition and subtraction. So today, we're going to be talking about the subtraction piece of it. And in what ways have we kind of hidden what we know we need to stop doing from ourselves, we've acted like it's not a problem, it's not a big deal, but there, there's something that we need to lose or let go of if we want to kind of pursue it to be better. And I think that there's a passage that Paul writes about that is, is really relevant to kind of that sort of topic. So I wanna, I wanna start our time off by asking this question in three different ways to kind of get to where we're going to try and buy it. And if you're not a Christian and you're just here checking it out or somebody bribed you with lunch afterwards, we're, we're honestly, we're glad you're here. Especially this first section is gonna be super, super relevant. Uh, and then I'm gonna dive into things that are just related to if you call yourself a Christian, these are relevant to you, but you get to kind of take a free pass on those if you want, that's totally fine. All right, re, uh, question number one, question to consider. What are you holding on to that's holding you back? Is there anything in your life, when you look at a lack of momentum and I need to do something here and I need to do better with this, as, and when it comes to subtraction, is there anything that you're holding on to that you're realizing or maybe you haven't realized it but now you're thinking about it for the first time that is actually holding you back? Occasionally, uh, my wife, um, we've been married for 14 and a half years. It'll be 15 in June. Um, she will come up to me and be like, there's something wrong. And I'll be like, what are you, ta what are you talking? She's like, what's wrong? And I, I, I do the uh, ever-present nothing. And she's like, no, I'm perceptive enough to know 
that there's something wrong. What is it? And, I, and, and usually I'll keep saying nothing, nothing, nothing. And in my mind, I know, I know it's just, it's stupid. I've held on to something that she said or didn't say or did or didn't do. And in my thing, I deserve something else or I deserve or whatever. I've held on to it. And I know it's dumb. I know it's stupid. And I, I don't want to verbalize it because it shows how petty I am. You know what I mean? And so I don't want to say what's wrong. I realize what I've been doing is I've been holding on to it and, and, and I shouldn't be doing it, and she's perceptive enough to kind of call me out on the carpet on it. And so this is what I'm doing to you right now. Is there something that you're holding on to that you realize this is stupid, it's petty, I need to kind of let this thing go? Or, or another way to ask the question is this, what are you holding on to that actually has a hold on you? And we know that there can be things in our life that we are holding on to that we think we have control over, but then they actually have control over us. There was like this uh, image thing that I remember being taught a, a long time ago, and I tried to do some research on it to figure out if this is actually true, this idea of a monkey trap. Uh, in fact, I titled this week's talk Monkey Trap, and I, uh, the only thing I could find about it was like life coaching websites, so I don't even know if this is just a proverb, probably, or if this is actually how people catch monkeys. So save your emails. I, I, I don't care. I, I just remember being taught this a long time ago, and it's stuck in my brain long enough that I thought I'll tuck it away, and someday I'll talk about it in front of people, and today's the day, so congratulations. They say you can catch a monkey by hollowing out a large coconut, drilling a hole in, hollowing out the large coconut, sticking in a banana inside, and then tying that coconut to a tree. The monkey then comes along, can see or smell the banana, sticks his hand in because his hand can fit all the way through, but then when he grabs a hold of the banana, is unable to pull it out, and here's what happens then. He refuses to let go of the banana, and then you show up, and the monkey's freaking out, but he's, again, refusing to let go. Now, I don't know if this actually works. I experimented it with this week, and I caught Andrew in the office, so I know it works with Andrew, but that's the only one I know about, right? It could not work for monkeys. What kind of monkeys does it catch? Not every monkey, by the way. Only stubborn monkeys who refuse to let go of something. That's the ones that lack the intelligence to let go. And so I, I remember being taught like this idea of let go of the banana. And, and whether that's true or not, the principle remains the same. We understand there are some dumb things in our life, we have held on to, and it's like destroying us, and it puts us in bad situations, and we've just not let go because we feel like we deserve it, and we feel like this is ours, and there's something about it. So whether or not it's true or not, the principle remains the same. What are you holding on to that's potentially holding you back from something along those ways? Now, one final observation before, if you're, again, you don't have to be religious to see the value and understanding something like that. Um, one final neutral, religiously neutral observation uh, that I have for you is this, that I, I think that what, you're real, what you need to realize is that you're not just hurting you a lot of times when you're holding on to something that you know you shouldn't be holding on to. What are you holding on to that people in your life wish you would let go? This is our third and final question. What's something that you're holding on to that people that you care about, that care about you in return, wish you would let go of? Because their life, your relationship would be better as a result of this. This idea, if we want to make progress, there's probably some, some subtraction involved. These are all really healthy questions, regardless of where you fall in the religious spectrum. But if you are a Christian, it goes even one step further than this. Paul, we're going to look at a passage that Paul writes today. Uh, Paul's pretty famous for... Um, 
writing, starting a bunch of churches in the New Testament era and then writing little correspondence back and forth to them. The church over time would capture all of those and they would make up over half of the New Testament. So it's not books that he wrote. They're simply letters that the church collected and thought, thought that this was important, not just for them, but for us in terms of interpreting what Christ's life, death, resurrection meant for living in that time and then perhaps even in our time. And so you've got Corinthians, you've got Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, all of these are different city locales that he writes and then we, we, get, we gather them. Uh, the one that we're gonna be focusing on today is the book of Romans or a letter that he wrote to a church in Rome. The unique thing about the church in Rome is that he did not start this church nor did he really know anybody that was a part of this church. Other ones, specifically Corinth, Galatia, Ephesians, he knew personally people. And so when he would write those letters, they would be oddly personal. It would be like, hey, tell Lydia, thanks for housing us and providing for us. Tell Carl, I'm going to beat him at checkers next time, right? All these, that's not in there, but you know what I mean, like that kind of personal detail. And then when it comes to Romans, perhaps you've tried to read Romans at one part and you found it to be incredibly technical, far more technical language than what you find in the other places. I think Paul is trying to um, show his apostolic authority or his right as an apostle or why they should listen to him when it comes to interpretation of Jesus's life and teaching and what it means for for them. He, He sees himself as a leader in the church and he thinks, I think, possibly, that he wants them to appreciate um, and not from an ego standpoint, but this is what you would, he, I think he's thinking, this is what you would want from me. In the same way that you go to a doctor sometimes and you want them to use technical language when talking about what's wrong with you. I don't know what's wrong with me. I need you to tell me. And I want you to use things that I understand, but I also want you to have the level of intelligence of things that I don't understand. That makes me trust you even more. If all you ever show me are x-rays and be like, see that circle thing? We're gonna do something about that, right? And you're like, I'm gonna need more from you than that because that's not enough. Like, tell me that that's hypochondria. You know, I I don't know, use words that end in things that I don't understand. Be like, all right, I'll trust you with my life. Now cut me open or whatever, right? In that same way, Paul is, I think, writing this letter to Romans going, you can trust me and I'm gonna talk about various different things that are gonna be very, very deep theological. And and they're living in Rome, so they're probably on the higher, uh, I mean, culturally, intelligence-wise, he's, he's speaking to a, high, a high, higher class of people, which makes Romans a very, very difficult, What probably, I think, the most difficult book in the entire New Testament to read. But um, we're gonna dive into chapter six today. Um, it's right in the middle of the letter. So there's arguments that are being made uh, in the front to kind of justify this. And then there's resolution at the end. We are coming into the middle of an argument. You have to kind of take that into context, but I still think that there's value uh, for us. In your Bible that you have at home, or maybe you brought it with you today, um, they're broken down into different chapters and each chapter probably has some sort of a subheading. Those were not put there by Paul. That would be whoever edited the translation that you have said, this is basically what this chapter is about or this passage is about. Uh, And most likely, we're gonna be looking at Romans chapter six. The subheading for Romans chapter six is going to say something about dead to sin, alive in Christ. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. This contrast between what your life was and what it looks like now that you've crossed the line of faith. What you used to be a slave to, and now what you're a slave to instead. How you used to live your life, but now what you're being called to do uh, as a difference. So that's basically the passage that kind of sets the framework for what we're gonna be diving into. Verse one says this, what shall we say then? He's already said some things, but what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
Interesting thought, perhaps, for him. He's, he, he's realizing, that, uh, or he's talking through, listen, um, whatever, whatever that you've done, there is enough grace being offered to you to overcome that. The uh, large amounts of sin, large amounts of God's grace. Therefore, he's saying, he's having this hyperbolic uh, or, or imaginative conversation, dialogue with somebody who's going, well, if that's the case, then why would I not go and do more sinning so that Christ's grace can be increased. It would be as if somebody comes to me because they want to do a baptism, right? And we film, uh, we do these every once in a while on a Sunday morning, and we usually film them telling their story. And, and every once in a while, we'll get somebody upstairs, and they'll be like, oh, so I'd like to tell my story, but like, it's not even that bad. Like, I'm like, I, and I grew up in church, and it, you know, I've been a pretty good person. I got like pretty decent grades, as if that has anything to do with religion. Doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I just, I, I, my story's not all that impressive. It would be as if I would say, well, here's the deal. Why don't we delay this for six months? You go and live just a raucous lifestyle for a little bit. And you come back, and then we'll be like, that. now we have a story to share. Now look at what Christ has done. This will get people crying and clapping. I mean, your story right now, they'll be like, that's cute. But if we could really build this thing up, we might actually have something here. Or, or maybe, maybe you've never witnessed a baptism before, that doesn't make sense to you, but you've had a, a spouse or a friend or a family member or you, yourself, who have gone shopping, and when you come back from shopping, you, you hold the bottom of the receipt to show somebody to justify all of your spending, and you'd say, look at how much I saved. And then somebody with enough wisdom to go, yeah, but you, you had to spend all of that to save this. Yeah, but if I wouldn't have spent all of this, I would not have saved this much. And you're trying to walk them through, that doesn't even make sense logically. Do you understand? You didn't save anything. You spent anyways. All right, this is what Paul is doing here. He's talking about grace. <laughs> somebody, somebody needed that today. I don't know who that was. <laughs> somebody's elbow and somebody, somebody's ribs hurt. This is going to be really, really helpful for your marriage and your relationship, whatever. All right. Uh, then he goes on. He says, okay, let's just settle that. That's been settled. And then he concludes kind of this little subsection. We were therefore buried with him through baptism. I just spoke of baptism. Uh, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He's trying to say, you died to an old way of living. Symbolically, when you go down into the water and you come up, that has been from, for the church a symbolic way of dying to my old self and rising to new life in Christ. That's literally some of the language a lot of pastors or priests will use uh, when it comes to the actual baptism. You may not hear it because there's music going on or something like that, but dying to, to your old life and rising yourself to new life in Christ. So that kind of symbolizes all of this regenerative process, what it means to cross a line of faith, uh, that now you're going to do life differently. Like, it's not just, this is what Paul's trying to say, it's not limited to simply beliefs. I now believe something different. When you cross the line of faith, it crossed into the actions and the way that you actually play this thing out. It's not enough to assent to something. I believe this now. There's going to be a shift or a change in your behavior based on that thing. He's writing these people going, you, you kind of know this to be true. All right. And then in the next subsection, we run into what I'm, I'm calling an interesting Paulism. He'll do this a couple of times across various letters. You'll see it several different times. He'll say, or he'll start off with these phrases. Uh, you do know 
right? Or don't you know, or don't we all know? This is his way of saying, um, hey, I'm going to say something. Perhaps I've assumed too much. I assume that you already know this, but for the sake of getting everybody on the same page, let me illustrate this. And, and if you've been a part of Eastlake for any length of time, you've kind of seen me do this sometimes. I'll say something that kind of sounds one way, and you're like, I think I get it. And then I'll try and say, all right, let's, let's paint it in this picture. Let's look at it from this angle. Let's change, let's swap out God for something different, and let's see if you can understand in this way, and maybe that will help you appreciate and understand fully what's going on. So he's saying, don't you know there's something at play here? He's checking his assumptions. Before we move on, let's make sure we're all on the same page. Here's what he says in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to somebody, or I added something, Paul didn't do that. He didn't use parentheses, I do. As obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. All right. Isn't it true that when you offer yourselves, when you do something or you give yourself away to something or somebody, there's a controlling aspect that comes along with that if you continue down that road long enough? He's interpreting, by the way, what Jesus would say. He, he didn't make this idea up. Jesus, when teaching some of his disciples in John chapter 8, writes in 34, verse 34, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There is a slavery aspect to sin. He goes, when you go down this road, he, he's like, it's interesting. You'll fall into the spot where you're not even doing the things that you want to do. It's just, you're just doing them. Like sin is this all-encompassing thing where you're not even choosing it anymore. It has you. You've refused to let it go and it's affecting how you live and think and do things. And I know we can be uncomfortable with his use of slave language and whatever, but it would be more commonplace in his world than in ours. Uh, they, they would have, there, there would be a slave trade going on. It would be a lot of times indentured servitude, a little bit differently than what we think of in terms of African slave trade or whatever. But he, he, there, that kind of a concept of you don't get to do what you want anymore. You are now being told what to do. You live with something long enough. You're not choosing it anymore. You may have chosen to do it at one point, but now it has a controlling aspect over your life. Talk to anybody. We see this most evidently through the process of addiction. Whether you've attended or seen or had somebody go through NA or AA or whatever, and you hear this language of them, what started off as kind of, you know, fine, it's fine, it's just a drink, it's just a this, it's just a this, it's just a this. Then I found myself not being able to function without it. And then I found myself making up excuses and stories and hiding it from myself, from others, from people that I care about. And I found myself, they, would, they might not say a slave to it, but that's essentially what Paul is trying to say. This is the reality. I want you to see it in this way. Don't you know? that you go down that road long enough, you're not in control anymore. That thing is now controlling you. Then he goes on, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Very, uh, don't you know that you're slaves to the one that you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death. He's gonna go on later and be like, um, <clears throat> the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's interesting what it contrasts here. He contrasts sin, not with God, sin, not with righteousness, but sin with obedience. Here's his big claim, whether we understand it or not. You will be a slave to something. You're never not a slave. 
The question is, are you going to be a slave to sin, which I'll define for you in just a second. Well, let's just do it now. Sin, like this catch-all word, I know it can mean missing the mark, it can mean all those things, but let's use it in this way. I think really sin is ultimately anything that you do that harms you or the yous that are around you. Anything that you do to harm yourself or the people who are around you. And the reason I think that this is true is because we have this phrase where John writes about why, you know, for God so loved the entire world that he gave his only begotten son, that we see a, a, a lot of times Jesus talking about people that he created as the most sacred things. <clears throat> that I want you to love others in the same way. This is how you people will know that you're my disciples. If you love others in the same way that I have loved you, are you able to see them as sacred things? Or have you categorized them just as people, just as things that are in the way of you getting what you want? When you're a slave to sin, people are an obstacle keeping you from what you think you deserve or what you want. But when you see it from this, when you're a slave to righteousness, when you're a slave to what God has called you to be, and by the way, you're always a slave at this point. There is no neutrality. You're, you're going to be a slave to something. Are you going to respond to the invitation to see people as sacred things. And that includes yourself, by the way. In another passage, in another letter, Paul would say in his letter to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, um, don't you know, another Paulism, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know? Isn't this obvious? You are sacred. All the sacredness that you associate with a temple, because for them, a body is just a body. But for, 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 uh, for them, temples, those are sacred places. We don't have a lot of temples. You don't go to a lot of temples, I, I imagine. You come to an abandoned theater that smells like cat piss, right? And that's what you come to. This isn't sacred. We know that. There's no sacredness about this. The most sacred thing you probably go, you might go to a cathedral. And when you walk into a cathedral in like New York or London or something like that, you look up and you think, wow, this feels kind of sacred. Or perhaps, I mean, maybe you never make it there, but for you, it's the sacredness of Martin Stadium, right? Or T-Mobile Park or, or CenturyLink Field. For us, sports arenas, when you walk in, you're like, this feels like I, I'm at home. There, it feels like there's a liturgy here. I always get garlic fries. I always do this. I always, there's an awe involved in this. Any, that, I mean, that kind of sacredness, that's the kind of thing that, that he's talking about. And instead of associating it with the place, what Paul does is says, don't you know that when Jesus was here, he associated that with people. And then he invited you and he invited me to treat those people as if they were sacred and to treat yourself as if you were sacred. And so you can live your life as a sin to kind of your own ego and your own pride and continue to see people as obstacles to the you that you want or you think you deserve to be. Or you can see yourself as a slave to obedience that leads to righteousness through this. Paul is saying, you will do something. You are not neutral. This, fa this facade or this fallacy that I am gonna choose to deny my freedom, I'm gonna deny my freedom, God, and, and, and become a person of faith, right? I'm gonna obey your instructions and, and not do the things that I wanna do. Paul would say, you're not denying your freedom. Here's what you're doing. You're saying no to the slavery of sin that leads that way. These idols of material possessions or security or these idols of self-image or ego or whatever, those are all, he's like, don't you see? You're not like sacrificing to be this Christian thing. 
You're saying no to a pathway that leads to death and you're responding to an invitation to obedience that leads to life. You're going to be a slave. Now, if you're not religious, you can choose to agree or disagree on this. That's fine. Paul is saying, as a Christian, you've crossed this line of faith. You're dead to that now. You're in, you are called and invited into something far more superior in this way. A life that responds to this. Verse 17, back to Romans chapter six. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. This is a new way of seeing yourself, a new pattern of understanding, a new pattern of thinking. We are to treat others in accordance to the way Christ treats us. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. In other words, this is crossed over again from a line of beliefs. It's not a set of beliefs When you cross that line of faith, there are expectations, there are things that you are being invited to physically to do, which requires potentially to let go of the things that are holding you back from this. This is Paul's biggest point, man. Those those attractions of that life of sin, those are things that you're holding on to. You've got to let go in order to reach the progress of what God is calling you to do. So coming back to the questions Let's get practical. That was very, like, again, Romans theology is is thick and whatever. But let's go practical. Back to this. If that's all true about us, if we're going to be slaves to either uh, our sinful ways or sins to righteousness, which leads to Christ, um, then what is it that you're holding on to that's holding you back? In your life, taking a personal valuation for you, what are you holding on to that actually has a hold on you, that you have not died to it? Yet, and the third question, what are you holding on to that people in your life, and this is really hard, wish you would let go of? Maybe it's somebody, maybe it's something, maybe people are always feeling like they, they're always competing with your possessions, maybe it feels like it's a job thing that is, I, I'm, I, I'm holding on to this idea that uh, you know, financial security is, is, is going to be the thing that brings us the most peace um, because we've been dealing for so long with financial insecurity that we just, this is, this is definitely it. We know that this is it. Uh, maybe it is a person, it's a dating relationship, and I've just refused to let go, even though mom says, it's, you know, everybody in my life that I care about is going, she's not good for you. And I'm like, I, I know me better than you know me, and I'm in control and whatever, but I just realize I've got like a blind spot in my life. I, I, I realize... Um, now that I, I may need to let go of it. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's like a good thing that you've made into an ultimate thing and you need to let go. Or maybe there's something that you need to let go of for now that you don't need to let go of forever. Have you thought about what season of life that you're in and how that affects what you hold on to is most important and worth giving your time, energy, talents towards? We have four kids at home right now. My wife reminds me constantly. <laughs> There are things that you don't do when you have a two-year-old, right? My parents are in this almost retired age. They get to do, they have a lot more freedom with their time and with their money and their vacations and their eating out schedule than I do. And they call me up on Friday afternoons going, we're going to lunch. Let's go to lunch. Let's do this. And I go, that sounds fun because I'm like an Enneagram 7 a little bit. That's like that, any, that side of me, that's like, I don't want to miss out on a party, right? And then my wife, I look over my wife, and she gives me a look of, you do know we have a two-year-old, right? You do know that eating out at Olive Garden with a two-year-old sounds like the fourth level of hell. That's what it sounds like. And I say, you're right. That is horrible. Let's not do that. 
right? Now, is that going to be forever? No, it's going to be a season thing, but that's important to think about and be like, I'm not saying no forever. I'm just saying no for now because it just doesn't make sense for right now. That's a small, trivial, petty thing. I get it, but that's the kind of level of I'm, I'm learning to do this, to take Jerry's thing from next week. I do this in the small pieces so that eventually I get to that spot where that's just true of who I am, that I have an understanding of who, who God is calling me to be and what that means in terms of dying to myself so that I can live uh, into obedience, so that I can be a slave into obedience, which leads to righteousness in Christ. Perhaps for you, a final last step would be an awkward, helpful way to start the year would be asking somebody, hey, am I holding on to anything that's holding us back? We're doing this thing together. Is there anything that I'm doing that's holding us back? I'm holding on to it and stupidly dumb. I need to let it go. What is it for me? Paul, in no certain terms, would say something like this. You need, if you're a Christian, again, free pass if you're not, If you're a Christian, you do not need to be mastered by anything. You already have a master. You already do. When you signed up for this thing, you're saying yes to this. Not a belief, not limited to a belief system. It goes far beyond that. So what are you holding on to that's holding you back? And would you, would I consider for a moment letting go of the banana and stop being a dumb monkey, right? (laughs) What are you holding on to that's holding you back?